ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Bunurong, Bunwarung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, as well as the Wurundjeri, Gadigal and Waramai people and people of the Kanemaluka. Hello, Christine. Hi, I'm Joe. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming in. Christine Milne is a name synonymous with the Greens in Australia. And for her, like so many others, her environmental awakening started with the loss of Lake Pedda. But the first time she got involved in an environmental protest and got arrested was the Franklin blockade. As we were sitting down in the studio, it was obvious that Christine and I were both thinking about what young climate activists could take from the Franklin story. It was so empowering because you knew you could win. And a lot of the young people today say to me, well, you know, it's all right for you because you had some big wins. We ha- we've had nothing but loss. I'm really interested in that as well because I think there's way more cynicism than there was back then around that power to make a difference. A lot of people who got arrested at the Franklin blockade came from outside Tasmania. And when they'd done their part, they got to go home. But for Tasmanians like Christine, who still lived and worked locally, it was a lot more complicated. And it even had an impact on her job. I'm Joe Lauder, and this is Saving the Franklin. And in this bonus episode, you're going to hear an extended interview with former Greens leader Christine Milne. Christine grew up on a farm in northwest Tasmania. But her passion for the environment started when she went to uni in Hobart. She was one of the people who was sickened by the loss of Lake Pedda. And that's what led to her becoming a lifelong environmental campaigner. I was the first person in my family to get to university. This was a really big deal. A girl from the northwest coast getting to university was quite a big thing at that time. I had been brought up on a dairy farm, didn't get away from the farm much. My parents weren't bushwalkers. I hadn't really had a lot of experience of the wilderness until I got to university and met with other people who were bushwalkers and who were familiar with Tasmania's wild places. And so Cradle Mountain became my go-to place. But I hadn't uh, had much experience of the West Coast um, or the Southwest, which in part explains why I didn't have the affinity with Lake Pedder that perhaps other people had. Do you ever think about what would have happened with your own life and your path if Lake Pedder hadn't been flooded? Yes, I often wonder how how all this happened, really. <laughs> it certainly changed my life in terms of making me a conservationist and changing my view about politics. Lake Pedder is extraordinary in green politics and most people in Tasmania, in fact most Australians, don't realise that the world's first Green Party was the United Tasmania Group. This is where that idea started. So this was the first place in the world that said, no, actually, the environment has to have a voice in politics. I actually had no idea that environmental politics started in Tasmania until I started talking to people like you for this story. And, you know, I reckon I reckon there's a lot of young people who would be surprised as well. But, you know, despite that, the PETA campaign wasn't successful and Lake PETA was flooded. What was that like for you? I was devastated when Lake PETA was flooded. I had such faith in politics and 
evidence-based politics that I really thought all this effort that the protesters were putting in was probably unnecessary because the evidence was there. When it was flooded, it changed my whole thinking about politics and I determined there and then that this must never happen again. You just can't trust them to make the right decisions. So that led you to the Franklin blockade years later and you were one of 1,200 or so people who went upriver and were arrested. How were you feeling the day you went up to the river blockade? Very excited to be going upriver, but also a little bit daunted by, well, what's it going to be like and what are the circumstances I'm going to find myself in and what about the arrest and what comes next, all of those things, because I'd never been in that situation before, but nobody had. And so we got upriver and camped in a beautiful place. I remember it as being really a lot of fun. The food was great. People had built a big um, fire around a 40-gallon drum. There was a pontoon on the river and people would go down there and play the flute and that would just drift up the valley and it you know it was just lovely and in the evening some of the police would come down from their police camp and sit on the pontoon and talk to the protesters really and head off again yes it was very very social for a lot of the time with most of the police upriver can you talk me through the plan for how you knew that you were going to be arrested or like who was going to be arrested that day the plan was groups would go out to be arrested each day. The group I was in was to be arrested up behind Warner's Landing where there was a bulldozer guy working. And so we went up there and interrupted him driving his bulldozer. We were arrested by an officer in uniform and then another one who was dressed up as a protester and the one in the plain clothes, I asked him if he would carry my bag and he was more than happy to do so. So I have this lovely photo of him carrying my bag back down to Warner's Landing where we would be picked up in the police boat and taken back to the police camp. Is it fair to say it like you just went totally according to plan? It was very simple. Totally according to plan. So I was full of beans and <laughs> it's uh, it was not really like you might expect with an arrest photo, you know, as big smiles and waves and so on. I was there to be arrested and I was arrested and away it went from there to the courts and then on to prison. And the whole strategy was to get as many people in Risdon as possible to block up the jail system, to basically clog everything up so that it wasn't functioning. And so I thought, oh, well, I can go to jail. I've got time to do that. So, yep. So I refused to sign the bail document and found myself on the bus to Risdon. Were you nervous? Were you thinking about the consequences? I'd never been arrested before, so that was an interesting experience. I did, hadn't really thought it through as to what it could mean, but it felt like the right thing to do at the time, and especially as it was part of the strategy of the whole campaign. So I thought, oh, well, I can do this. Do you remember what it was like when you rocked up at Risdon and like your impressions because everybody has like I'm sure in their mind like the impression of what a jail looks like mm. was it what you expected the first thing is there was a complete lack of color and music and sound so it was all 
grey and pale blue. So there were uniforms that were blue. There was grey lino or grey tiles. So I just remember this uniformity of boring, dull colours and silence and quiet. It was a very small single cell with a, um, a bed and a toilet and a basin, I think, in one corner. I did did actually count the number of Besser brick blocks. People go on about, oh, prisons are too too soft, too nice for people, you know. But the reality is the deprivation is the deprivation of your freedom. It doesn't matter what it's like in there. The fact is you are locked in and you can't go out. So once the door clanged and bang, you were in there. And you also had no privacy because there was a window in the door and anyone, jailers, matrons, whatever you want to call them, personnel, could look in the window at any time regardless of what you were doing in there. There were only seven women in prison in Tasmania at the time that I was there. So the overwhelming majority of people in the women's prison were blockaders. <laughs> So there was a young woman in there and I was particularly interested in her case and saddened by it because she had gone to prison as a 16-year-old and she'd been convicted of first-degree murder, which was quite extraordinary. And she was in her early 20s by then with not much prospect of parole. And so... I just talked to her about books and education and what she might hope for when she got out, just to try to understand what her hopes for the future were. And eventually she did get out, but sadly died some years later. How did meeting her impact you? Oh, just the tragedy of a young of a young woman in a set of circumstances that ended up with such a violent conclusion and a very sad life in prison. It made me realise how self-righteous, if you like, society is, and I certainly was, about why people are in prison. You know, that sense that, well... If people have gone to prison, they must have done something really bad and then they're being punished for it and that that sort of thinking. And for the first time in my life, I actually had a chance to listen to people who had been abused as children, who had become abusers themselves, who were substance abusers, you know, all just all kinds of things. And so that black and white idea about right and wrong and good and bad and punishment and so on just went out the window. And I just realised that the the issues of intergenerational justice and lack of social justice and lack of education and what it all means really came home to me. That was a really important lesson uh, for me for the rest of my life and particularly in politics that notion of intergenerational poverty and injustice stuck with me. What was it like when you left the prison? I was picked up and went home and it felt very strange driving home 
with ordinary life just happening in the streets and people shopping and you just think, I've just had this life-changing experience and everyone else is just going on as normal. My mother came down with my husband to pick me up but not my father and so my father never talked about it from that day to the day he died. I think for, for them, they were so proud of their daughter going to university. This was such a big thing and so proud of me and then to think that I would end up in prison, it was just, it was just too much. And I don't think Dad really understood what the whole Franklin thing was about and so he, he chose never to talk about it because there is this thing in Tasmania and people from the mainland may not understand it, but it's intergenerational. And that is, if you don't talk about it, it's not happening. That is how Tasmanians have managed homosexuality in their families for years. And it's how everything is managed. So... If there is something in the family that would be difficult if anyone were to articulate it, then the best thing is you don't talk about it because it's not happening. So after that, it wasn't talked about, wasn't happening, we're all good. What was it like when you went back to teaching at Devonport? Going back to teaching was quite confronting. I actually wasn't expecting too much of a hostile reaction, but of course that was very naive because Devonport did have a substantial hydro base there and a number of the parents were employed by the Hydroelectric Commission. So when I went into the classroom, down the back was a sign, pretty symptomatic of the kind of stereotyping of blockaders. Uh, suggesting, you know, people who could play a tin whistle, have trendy clothes, doll bludgers, homosexuals especially welcome, failed politicians. So you just knew that that was the, if that's what the kids were bringing to school and putting on the back wall, you knew what was happening at home. And so I wasn't in the least bit surprised when some of the parents made a formal complaint to the principal to say that I wasn't a fit and proper person to be teaching their children. And that was really the first time I thought, you know what, I could actually lose my job here. I actually had never thought that that would be a possibility. However, I had a very good principal, Bob Doran, and uh, he took me into the office and said, look, uh, I'll back you, but you have to undertake not to talk about the Franklin in any shape or form in the classroom or to the students, just keep it to yourself and just do what you normally do and that's where we'll go from here. Do you think it, it meant that you had a different experience to, say, someone who flew in from Melbourne and got to go to the blockade? It was a very different experience as a Tasmanian being part of the Franklin blockade and the prison experience than someone from the mainland because for many of those people from the mainland, they had the full support of their families and communities. They were all incredibly proud of their families being involved and when they went home, they went home as heroes. But people in Tasmania had to go back to the real world, their real life in, in Tasmanian communities, which were bitterly divided. Did you regret it at any point? I've never regretted it. Never, ever regretted it. In fact, you know, when I walked out of Risdon, 
I realised that if this is the worst that can happen to you in Tasmania, and I absolutely say this as a privileged white person, but if this is the worst that can happen to you in Tasmania, I can survive it. I'm up for it. Whatever they do to me now, I can actually manage it. Now, before then, I wouldn't have known that. But after that, I did know it. And so after that, I was never afraid to take a stand. Looking back on it now, how do you think that campaign, do you think it changed Tasmania and what kind of impact do you think it had in the years to come? I think it certainly changed the way that politics regarded environmentalism. So up until the Franklin, people thought that they could pretty much ignore the environment, but it was very much an add-on. But after the Franklin, there was a recognition that there is something profoundly different happening, that environment is actually very important and that environment will shift votes. That's the Hawke message, environment shifts votes. And once the political parties realised environment actually shifts votes, then you started to get more serious engagement. But on the other side, the West Coast was a region that was struggling economically and the people there just wanted opportunities and they wanted jobs. Could you empathise with them? Always in Tasmania, I have felt very much a sense of responsibility in the communities that are adversely impacted by what they they perceive loss of employment and sometimes it's real, which is why I've campaigned always for the whole clean, green and clever Tasmania and actually new jobs in these different industries. The thing is, how do you retrain people and move them from an extractive industry to work in these new industries? Because frequently they're a different skill set. Um, that's where restoration comes in because often the skill set is the same. But Strawn became a tourist mecca after the Franklin. So a lot of jobs did go to Strawn, but not Queenstown. Queenstown died because the mine died. And the tragedy, this is a really good example of the disgusting behaviour of politics. It is so much easier for people to return to their comfort zone than it is to have to explore the prospect that things will be different. It would have happened then if you hadn't had cynical politicians reassuring people that life doesn't have to change. That is the most exploitative and cynical politics because they refuse to acknowledge the world has changed and play to people's desperation only to let them down. And they know damn well they're going to let them down. Do you think that that kind of, that battle and that mentality of jobs versus the environment. When you look back, did that start with the Franklin? I think that's where it was uh, first articulated in that way. Um, Certainly it had been there in the PETA campaign, it had been there in earlier campaigns, but the Franklin was a national campaign and it was a global campaign in the sense that the rest of the world was looking at what was happening in Tasmania and thinking, wow, look at that, look what they're doing. So people were taking notice of what happened here. So I think that is the case, that that's where it was articulated as a jobs versus the environment and it has been the case ever since. 
We hoped that there would be a clear turning point in Australia and a recognition of the importance of the environment, but it was a vain hope. Environmentalism didn't go away, but the vested interests in Australia just redoubled their efforts in terms of buying the political process, and it's the same to this day. Uh, the vested interests of the extractive sector have always made a thing about jobs. They know they can't win on the environment. They know people care about the environment, but they play to this, well, you can care about the environment all you like, but you'll be unemployed. And that's what has been the really hard thing to get jobs and environment as opposed to jobs versus environment. Do you think if the Franklin happened today that you'd see the same mobilisation and campaign around it and the same result? No. And that's mainly because of the anti-protest laws. So where we've got to in Australia is the vested interests own the political process and they've lost social licence. So the only thing to do is criminalise protest. And that is the difference. When I was arrested and went to jail, it was for a misdemeanour. I did not end up with a criminal record. Now they have criminalised protest around Australia. So a young person going and risking being elected now is not just risking being arrested. Once they've got a criminal record, they've got it for life. And unfortunately, it means they won't get jobs. So we are now talking about serious ramifications. A young person who would like to be involved in direct action now risks a hell of a lot more than those of us 40 years ago. So I can't emphasise enough how important it is that civil society puts pressure on parliaments to stop acting as the heavy protectors of vested interests in the extractive industries. That is not the job of a parliament, but that is, they're more or less the, the paid heavies now. What do you think younger generations can learn from the success of the Franklin and how could it be applied to the modern context? The most important lesson I think I learned in the Franklin and I've kept it up in all the protests to this day, it's when it all seems lost it never is. I remember during the Wesley Vale campaign when the bulldozers were all on the site. And I said to Bob Brown, look, in the Franklin, Bob, how did you keep going when all seemed lost? I was waiting for some amazing philosophical response from Bob. And he said, oh, well, it's obvious if you're just fighting for the right thing then something will fall out of the sky. <laughs> and I thought, well, I was hoping for something a bit more profound than something will fall out of the sky, but for want of something else, I'm going to hang on to something will fall out of the sky. Well, I think probably a week later, nothing to do with me, something went down the pipe at the Wesley Vale, the small Wesley Vale pulp mill, and killed thousands and thousands of fish. They washed up all along the coastline and the whole campaign took off again. And sure enough, that turned the tide on the campaign and you couldn't have, have planned or imagined it. 
And that has happened time and time again since, where something happens, you didn't organise yourself, but it gives you a whole new lease of life. So you just keep going because something will fall out of the sky. Do you think there was more like idealism back then around the, that power to make a difference? I think the Lake Petter campaign made people like me and many others like me think, I won't let them do that again. The next time I will be there. When we were there and we won, it reinforced in all of us the view that if enough people stand up, if enough people care, we can win. So those of us who went through that never, ever gave up the sense of hope that if enough people care and if we keep at it long enough, we will win. But young people do say to me, well, that's all very well for you, but I've been campaigning on climate, you know, since I was a teenager and it's only ever got worse. And so I do take that on board and that's why... I'm such a big supporter of ecosystem restoration because that is something that you can get your hands dirty doing something where you can see a positive outcome, where you actually are physically part of giving back something. And I think that hope in ecosystem restoration is really an important antidote to the frustration of being out the front. Uh, I'm now convening the Restore Lake Petter Group because I'm determined that I'm going to close the circle here. I didn't get to see it, but I will see it restored. Restoring Lake Petter now would be such a powerful global symbol and put Tasmania right back in the headlights again globally as being a place that recognised a huge mistake was made and in this decade of ecosystem restoration give hope that you can once again restore a wild place. And we could do that in southwest Tasmania. The Franklin was such a big win for environmentalists. Did you comprehend just how significant it was at the time? At the time that we were campaigning for the Franklin and on the blockade and then when we finally won, I don't really think it dawned on any of us of what a significant moment that would be in our lives. You know, 30 and 40 years on, people look back and for many, it's the most significant thing that they cite as having done in their lives. It wouldn't have happened without that activism. The politics would never have happened without people putting their bodies on the line. And that's why we have to ensure people always can put their bodies on the line and that's why these anti-protest laws have to go. At the time you're campaigning, you can never you can never really take in, I don't think, what it means to future generations to have secured those places. And when I look back at it and I just think, well, whatever else happens in terms of leaving behind my political career or my environmental activism, I know that that river runs free to the sea and will after I'm gone and that's something really special to have left behind. That magnificent huge area of wilderness remains.
If you want to listen to the full series, check out Saving the Franklin, season three of the ABC's Dig podcast. Keep an eye out wherever you're listening. And also, if you subscribe to the show on the ABC Listen app, you'll get some exclusive bonus interviews there as well. This series is reported and hosted by me, Joe Lauder. Pia Wersu is our producer and reporter. Bethany Atkinson-Quinton is our supervising producer. Tynan King is our researcher. Our executive producer is Claire Rawlinson. Engineering by John Jacobs and our original theme music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Tim Roxburgh. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. Suddenly I found the rope back under my armpit again. I came back in this rush. I'm I'm having a seizure. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. My mom, my sister and I, we were all sleeping on that bed together. At the baseboard of the bed, there was an iguana. Follow on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.